0: Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other, and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and
1: more at spiritualitystudy.org. Through all the ruptures of the past year and more, we have been given so much to learn and callings to live differently, but how to do that and how to begin. Resmaa Menekum's book, My Grandmother's Hands, and his original insights into racialized trauma in all kinds of bodies has offered new ways forward for us all. He's become one of my most important teachers, and I immediately said yes when he asked to join me in conversation together with Robin D'Angelo. She has been a foremost white voice in our civilizational grappling with whiteness. Separately and together, these two clarify the important work that those of us in white bodies need to do in ourselves and with each other in service to everyone else. This conversation is not comfortable, but it is electric and it opens possibility.
2: White folks don't even know that we're not even speaking the same embodied language. We don't see the world in the same way. And so white people coming up and just saying, this is what I want to do or this is is what I think, you don't even realize that the language that you're speaking is wounding.
0: At this point, anybody listening, anybody white listening, um, might be feeling, oh my God, I can't get this right. And that is true. You cannot get this right. Like a piece of it is is being in that
1: unsettling place of not knowing, that deep, deep humility. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Resma Menikam is based in Minneapolis, where he is an esteemed presence at the heart of this city's grappling with pain and ways to move forward. You'll hear him speak of bodies of culture rather than bodies of color. Robin D'Angelo gave us the phrase, white fragility. She teaches, writes, and consults from Seattle. This conversation took place by Zoom in the summer of 2020. So, I have some questions and I have some observations. I would like to run by you. But really what I'm delighted to do is bring the two of you into conversation with each other. You're both doing lots of speaking in this virtual world and being asked and invited to participate in things. Um, If there are, even in all of that, questions you are not being asked that you would like to address or conversations you'd like to be having or hearing, then I would hope that, you know, maybe this could be a space for that as as this next hour or so unfolds. Robin, because we haven't met before and you haven't been on the show, I am curious. The only thing that I, that I saw as I was looking around about The background of your life was somewhere you said or you wrote that you grew up poor and white in San Francisco. I'm curious, you know, how you would trace in the background of your childhood, in your earliest life, the seeds of this clarity about white fertility that you have really distinctly articulated for our world. Well,
0: thank you for that question. I grew up poor and white in the Bay Area. Okay. We moved frequently. I think uh, from a very early age, I had a very deep sense of shame. Um, I will never forget a moment in which, uh, two moments in fact, one in which a teacher held my hand up in front of the class as an example of poor hygiene Mm -hmm. and told me to go home and tell my mother to wash me. Um, My mom was a single mom. She had three children. Uh, She was sick. Uh, And she literally couldn't house, feed, or clothe us. So I was dirty. The other moment was visiting a friend of hers, some, some lady, you know, when you're a kid and you get taken to somebody's house and they have kids, so you're playing. And on the way out, I was the last one out the door and I overheard one of their children ask her mother, what's wrong with them? That was her question, what's wrong with them? And I stopped, you know, riveted, like I wanted to hear. And her mother put her finger to her lips and said, shh, they're poor. That was, a, you know, revelatory moment. That was a moment when I, I realized there's something about us that everyone can see that's shameful, but that should not be named. At the same time, I also always knew I was white, and I knew that it was better to be white. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I can remember seeing food left out, uneaten, uh, and I was hungry, and I would reach for it, uh, You know, maybe out in a park on a picnic table or something, and I would be admonished by my mother. Don't touch that. You don't know who touched it. It could have been a colored person, Mm. which Mm -hmm. was the language of the time. And the the message was clear. If a colored person touched it, it would be dirty. But I was actually dirty. (laughs) But in those moments, in those moments, I wasn't poor anymore. In those moments, I was white. We we used, if you will, black people to project our shame onto, to, to realign us with the dominant white culture that our poverty separated us from.
1: Right.
0: I don't have less racism because I grew up poor, and I don't have less wh- white privilege either. I just learned my place from a different class position than I would have had I been middle class and white. But I still learned it, and, and it's on me to take the rest of my life to, to unpack how I learned it, how it's manifesting. And in some ways it manifests in... Um, not feeling there's a kind of day late and dollar short (laughs) that people who grow up poor have. I, I didn't go to college until I was in my 30s. And sometimes I see racism happening, but I don't feel like I'm as smart as those people, like especially in academia. And so it may truly be a feeling of inferiority that's keeping me silent. But when I stepped out of myself and asked Yes, but how is it functioning right now in this room, regardless of what is driving your silence? How is it functioning? Well, it's functioning to uphold racism and to, you know, I'll get ahead (laughs) by my silence. And so that's unacceptable to me. And when I use my white position to break with silence and white solidarity and speak up, I am simultaneously healing the lie that I am inherently inferior because I grew up poor. Right. So for me to center race, even though I experience oppression and have experienced oppression in other aspects of my life, for me to center race and feed every other identity or experience through that lens has been the most profound um,
1: tool, if you will, Resume, I'm thinking about how you um, speak about bodies of culture. Mm-hmm. And I almost feel like what Robin described is another form of being a body of culture. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: In, a, in a different way, right? But yeah. another
2: yeah, part
1: yeah. of the same kind of... It, part of the same pathology in some way.
2: Yeah. Some ways. The pathology is, is readily available for any type of identity, right? So the pathology... Of, of racism or the pathology of classism or the pathology of homophobia, those are always readily available to use. But I really do, there, there are particular things that when I'm talking about in terms of the lens that I, that I come from, it really is about, for me, having a real understanding on how this thing about race comes up. So, yes, there are pieces in there. Um, but for me, much like what Robin said in terms of the lens that she uses by which she is able to kind of see and judge and navigate, the world is, is really synonymous with when I'm talking about um, a, a living embodied philosophy. Because what we know is that white body supremacy and white supremacy is not just structural but it is also a philosophy. That's why it can mutate. That's why it can adapt to every situation. And before you know it, whiteness is once again centered, even though you started off with kind of a liberation mindset or, or, or trying to affect some type of change. And so for me, um, uh, um, yes, they're similar, but they're not the same. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Not, OK. Yeah. yeah. The key is how do
0: you use it as a way in and yeah. not a way out? Yeah. Right. right. Again, I got to repeat it. I I always knew it was white. I knew it was better to be white. Being white has helped me leave poverty. Right. I can't talk about any other identity without talking about how race shapes that identity. Mm -hmm. Um, It's so easy to see where we swim against the current Mm -hmm. and so much harder to see where we move with the current. Mm -hmm. And and for me, that's that's the richest place because I've spent my life uh, noticing the injustices I've experienced. But I, I, I was very far in life until I, I started to notice what injustice have I perpetuated? You know, and how I'm, have I benefited? Go for
1: it. Yeah. And I, I think um, one thing that's so insidious about this is, you know, when, when, a resume, when you use the word philosophy, mm-hmm. I think when people hear that word, it mm-hmm. sounds like... An idea system that one knows one holds, right? <laughs> An articulated right. clarity yeah. of thought and yeah. belief. Yeah. But you know, you you're coming at this and how this in our bodies whether we know it or not. Exactly. And 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 Robin, you well, your your entire premise is uh, is how white people live and move. Um, and not only don't know this, but feel entitled if it is challenged. Yeah. And, um, you know, Krista, I think what you were articulating
0: is what um, sociologist Joe Fagan calls the white racial frame. Yeah. Like the framework through which we make racial meaning. And it includes everything. Interpretations, perceptions, emotions, language. And when you're viewing through a frame, it's so internalized, you don't know you're viewing through a frame. Mm -hmm. I, I would not have been able to tell you that I had a racial framework I, I was raised to just see myself as human <laughs> I'm just a person looking out through objective eyes <laughs> right right no I'm looking out through white eyes right, right. and that is a really hard for a lot of white people yeah. it's interesting how defensive and angry white people get when you suggest that that you could know anything about them just because they're white right. and that there's a collective worldview that that they have. They're not all just special and unique
1: and different. <laughs> There's some place that you, uh, I've heard you observe that, and I think this is uh, this is a question I've asked, and it's a question I hear asked a lot. You know, white people's saying, which it just confirms what you're saying, like, how did I not see this? And you've said, um, we don't see it, and we do see it, but we can't admit we see it. And that this this creates an irrationality.
0: We're so invested in not seeing this yeah. for so many reasons. Yeah, it's this really weird. I, I'm gonna imagine you tell me, Krista, if you can relate. On the one hand, we really don't know, right? We we really are just oblivious to this and we're shocked when we when we finally see it. And on the other hand, yeah, we know, mm. we know, yeah. I know, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Both those things are actually simultaneously mm. true or real. Mm-hmm. And and then you add that you can't admit that you know, uh, and it makes us, yeah, fairly irrational. I mean, you can add a lot of other things too, like right. internalized superiority
1: that we can't admit to and, you know, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or Right, I think certainly it penetrates in moments. Mm-hmm. and then it gets filed away That's or it. or you talk yourself out of you know i think for me it would be i can't do anything about this yeah like yeah. i can't let in the magnitude of this yeah yeah
2: so you know there's there's a really interesting thing a number of experiences that i've had since uh, brother george floyd was murdered mm-hmm. um and one of them is having um Friends, white friends that I, that I care for, white friends that I love, and, and, and family members. Um, w- one of the things that has been, that's kind of the thing that everybody's starting to say now is, I'm an ally. White folks love telling you that they're an ally. And, and I had an interesting conversation with a good friend of mine. Um, this is somebody that I've known for a very long time. And he told me, he said, man, I, I did not understand. How just oblivious to this stuff that I was. He said, "I've been your friend a long time," and he said, "and I'm mm-hmm. still kind of like not understanding." He said, "and he said one thing happened that just um, crystallized this for me," and he said that that he was the neighborhood that he belonged to was very liberal. Right? they're not the devout races they're the complicit races right they they're they're very liberal they you know have black lives matters in their right. uh, yard and he said one of the interesting things that happened was that when all of this went down all of a sudden the black lives matters things that were on people's lawns disappeared and uh, he said he found that strange because if they mattered, if Black Lives mattered before all of this went down, yeah. what's making you now pick them up? And he said, and the, the the thing about it was, is that I immediately thought about Resma can't remove his black skin, that yeah. Resma can't remove, you know, the, the 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 cops, you know, killing him. He can't do that, but we can. And 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 so he's been kind of working with that and struggling with that for a minute, and I just let him struggle with it because that's this an important struggle. It's an it's an important question to begin to to deal with.
1: Can I add they, something to that? Yeah, I'm just curious. Would oh, they take the signs down because they were scared of how? Yeah, well, what he said was he felt- is that they
2: got they got some report that um, that you know because people were targeting those pieces and oh, and see. and when he said that to me, I said I, you know I can't cuss on here, but I said I said dude, that is irrelevant. <laughs> it is really irrelevant whether or not they were they they thought that somebody would then target them. People target me every day. Right. People target. So 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 the moment you get uncomfortable, you have you have escape hatches. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You, 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 you actually, you actually are advantaged by being born in a white body in ways that I am not advantaged.
1: Mm-hmm. Robin, you want to say something? Well, so two thoughts, because, of course,
0: I was so rich. Well, And one is that it's not benign or innocent that he still doesn't quite see it. And I just really wanna push back against any narrative that white people are innocent of race. I think it takes energy not to see it. It's a kind of willful not knowing or a refusal to know. Mm-hmm. And I, I offer that question, right? When, when white people ask me, what do I do? I ask them in, in return, how have you managed not mm-hmm. to know? When the information's everywhere, they've been telling us forever. You know, what does it take for us to ask and then to keep asking and, and, and it just speaks to how seductive the forces of comfort are. So what am I going to do to keep myself uncomfortable because that comfort is really seductive and powerful.
2: And has a cost. Yes. And it, 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 is, not a, it, it is not a seductiveness without a cost, mm-hmm. is that most white people are willing for other people to pay that cost.
1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with therapist and trauma specialist Resma Menicum, together with Robin D'Angelo, the author of White Fragility. I feel like in both of your work, and this is not enough, right? In some ways, this isn't even an answer to the question of how to begin. But but there is a necessity and virtue of white people, of me, letting myself be uncomfortable.
0: Mm -hmm. But at the same time, think about the language of violence so many white people use to describe that discomfort. So Mm -hmm. we say things like, well, I'm not going to have that conversation because I don't want to be attacked. Yeah, um, attacked right. That that's a, yeah. that's a you know, and we're and we're only talking about some you know chosen moment of discomfort in a conversation, mm-hmm. and what a perversion of the true direction of violence. Yeah. You know that we've been perpetrating or in, in our name for hundreds mm-hmm. of years, yeah. and that leads to this idea about allies. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I don't. I do not call myself an ally. I do not even say I'm an anti-racist. I will say I'm involved in anti-racist work, but it's really for Rezma to decide if in any given moment, I'm actually behaving in allied or anti-racist ways. And notice that, in any given moment. It's not like a fixed status. And I'm the least qualified to make that determination because I have investments in this system that I don't even know I have. Like, I can't really trust myself. <laughs> so I have to have accountability kind of set up around me.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I want to keep going with all of this. Mm-hmm. I do, before we go too much farther, I want to ask each of you um, how you're thinking about what has just happened in 2020.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, the pandemic upon the pandemic or the Awakening to the racial pandemic that had been with us. but i want, I just wonder how you how you've understood w- what what has happened that may be significant, that may be new, from what you've already been attending to in your lives and work? So
2: I've been taken to calling a friend of mine had a a Instagram picture up, and he had a mask on, and on the mask he said, "I'm still dealing with Covid." Uh, 16, 19, not just COVID-19, uh, yeah. and that's true for me. The the weathering effects of white body supremacy has affected my very skeletal structure, has affected my uh, respiratory system, has affected my cardiovascular system, has affected my my mama's cardiovascular system, her mother's. I mean, mean, the the, the effects of racialization and white body supremacy and the weathering effects of it is why COVID-19 has run rampant through my communities and run rampant through the East African community is because one of the things is that the systems have tenderized our physical systems to the point to where COVID just kind of set up shop and, and mm. wrecked shop because our mm. bodies were already weathered. And so that, in addition to COVID, and then in addition to Sister Brianna Taylor getting murdered, Brother Arbery getting murdered, Brother um, Floyd, and the countless before and the countless since then. This is, I just have to say that... Um, this is, this is brutal. This is brutality and viciousness at a level that when white folks and allies say that they're allies and what can we do and you think you're being helpful or what should I do now and you think you're being helpful, there is such a brutality to your words that, you know, many times, you know, I, I can't fool with white folks. I I mm-hmm. I can't I can't be around you. I need you to leave me alone. I need you, you know, to to not ask me what my opinion is of a black man getting murdered um with with no regard. Um and so for me this idea about allyship really does uh, fall into the level of, or fall into the place of, of whether or not white people have the capacity to stop what I call declarations of independence, declarations of "I'm not racist," declarations of "I'm an ally," declarations that I'm a good individual white person, and they're going to have to start really beginning to figure out how they build culture uh, around um, abolishing. White supremacy. Anything other than that for me really is, and you've heard me say this before, really is performance art. It is not, mm-hmm. it is not real. Um, if you're not going to be with other white bodies for three to ten years, grinding on specifically about race and specifically about the things that show up when white bodies get together to build culture, then um, then I can't fool with you. I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm not. Um, I'm not interested in your credentialing or your your virtue signaling. It it means nothing to me, um, because I know that when I go home and my son is getting ready to go and get in the car and drive off, that my stomach feels like it's going to fall out. That my that when I watch my wife have to go interact with these organizations and these structures that are brutalizing her. I know that that's going to continue for me, even when you tell me you're an ally.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to like offer to white listeners if you're if you're feeling um, frustrated, like just watch what's coming up for you as you as you hear Resma's hopelessness, and, and you start to have feelings, and some of them may be anger right? Like, why are you not giving me hope? (laughs) Why are you not making me feel better? Um, What am I supposed to do? Just notice all of that. It's a different way of breaking through the apathy of whiteness. And it's not going to be a kind of tie it up in a bow. I mean, much less Resma, give me hope, Mm -hmm. right? Um, It's a kind of, let's break through how deep the... The apathy is, and use your umbrage if you're feeling it, to to motivate you to prove him wrong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Show him that you can be trusted, that we can be trusted. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. just but hope is such a tool in a way yeah. of whiteness, mm-hmm. and we've we've dangled that tool in front of black people for four hundred years, yeah. and we keep. Not you know, not showing up in in the long term yep.
1: after a short break, more with Robin D'Angelo and Resma menicom On being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation.
0: Harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about the latest discoveries in the study of hope and optimism, intellectual humility, and free will at templeton.org.
1: I'm Krista Tippett and this is on being. Today an electric conversation with Robin DiAngelo, a foremost white voice on grappling with whiteness, together with Resma Menachem, the therapist and trauma specialist who has clarified new insight into racism and racial trauma as they lodge in our bodies. Robin is based in Seattle. Resma is based in Minneapolis, where he's an esteemed counselor and justice coach at the heart of this city's grappling with pain and ways to move forward. The three of us spoke in the summer of 2020. One of the things I'm aware of right now is that it's stressful and uncomfortable for white people to hear generalizations about white people. <laughs> And so I'm going to continue in that vein. So, you know, both of you um, have particularly called out, and this is also like doubly uncomfortable white progressives. Yeah. And I just, you know, I think one of the things you said to me, Resma, when we spoke, not being able to imagine that we would be in lockdown a month later and on and on. Um, um, but this feels like one of the things, one of the realities that has surfaced that that there's work for white people that they have to do among themselves. Yeah. And that, in fact, there has been a rewounding that has happened in these year, early years of the invention of diversity, equity, and inclusion of and doing it often in workplaces, getting everybody in a room and acting like we can talk about this together. Um, So I I would like to talk a little bit about, about that, about the work that white people need to do on themselves and with each other.
2: Yeah. Uh, i'm gonna let robin take that yeah. right. robin please <laughs>
0: i actually am getting to where i i do think that we should not be having these conversations together mm-hmm. until we've done a, a fair amount of our own personal work uh, as white people because we cause so much wounding in these conversations mm-hmm. um and our consciousness is you know i mean we you can get through graduate school in this country without ever discussing systemic racism, right? So we just have a pretty low critical awareness and we go into these dialogues and we cause a lot of harm. But when you suggest, uh, you know, we're going to separate by race, a really funny thing happens. (laughs) Like white people freak out. Yeah. Right? right? Like, what? (laughs) What? Well, How will I learn about race if Resma doesn't tell me? Um, What do you mean? I thought, you know, all of that. And and what I want to point out is that most white people live their lives in segregation. Most white people will go cradle to grave with few, if any, authentic relationships with black people with no sense whatsoever that anything of value is missing from their lives and if we're going to be really honest we will measure the absence of black people as the criteria for the value of our neighborhoods and our schools right i i was never meant to know or love Resma. I was meant to live my life not knowing or loving him. Mm -hmm. Tolerate him? Mm -hmm. Smile at him? Be nice to him? Mm -hmm. Yes, but know or love him? Absolutely not. And yet for a brief contrived exercise explicitly, right the moment we say, okay, now we're going to separate by race in order to work on racism, white people uh, become unglued. Right. So it's like as long as it just happens, right, it just happens that I grew up in an all-white neighborhood, still live in an all-white neighborhood, go to, you know, mostly white schools, send my kids to mostly white schools, and talk about those neighborhoods and schools in glowing terms as good.
1: Right. You've, I heard you say that somewhere. I mean, just that. that, that, mm, it, that How powerful. can we say that a neighborhood or a school that is all-white or almost all-white— is a good neighborhood or a good school. See, the, and I, I, as a good
0: white progressive, I'm never going to say the N-word. Uh, but that, for me, is the most powerful message of all, the, the most powerful message of white superiority, white supremacy, is that we could and do call white segregation good. Mm-hmm. That's a really deep message.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Uh, you know, we, in February, we're going to talk about the tragedy of, you know, segregation on blacks in the Jim Crow South. And then we're going to talk in glowing terms about how, you know, how good our neighborhood is. Um, so it's, it's those messages that we have to look at. Um, and as long as we define racist as, you know, the N word and the white hood and the meanness, we're not going to see what we contribute Daily and, and let me just ask Resma, would you rather have um, a Richard Spencer in your face or a white progressive?
2: Uh, none of them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I don't have I don't. Have I don't have a space for any either one of them fools. But um, so so. <laughs> what I would say is, I would rather have somebody that I know is working for three years, three to ten years, working with other white people on their stuff. Mm-hmm. I can tolerate that. I can deal with that. I can even support that, right? Mm-hmm. But your declarations don't really mean anything. The idea the idea that, that people can come up to me and ask me what should I do when we have Google is just crazy <laughs> on its face. And that's that's one of the things that that I really believe is why white folks got to do this work themselves, because white folks don't even uh, don't even know that we're not even speaking the same embodied language. (laughs) We're not even speaking the same verbal language. We don't we don't see the world in the same way. So we are not saying the same things. We are not vibing the same things, and so white people coming up and just saying, "This is what I want to do," or "This is this is what I think," you don't even realize that the language that you're speaking is wounding. It is right. brutal and always has been. And I don't care who, I don't care how many babies you didn't with a black man or a black woman, no. or or how many times you you marched with Martin Luther. None of that matters. You have to develop culture.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Rezmer, this is such a critical point, I, and you know, I'm always like, "Why?" I want white people to hear this point. So, when white people tell you they're not racist, mm. that actually isn't communicating to you no, that they're it's, not it's, racist. It's
2: that they're actually they're actually saying the exact opposite. And the other yes. piece that they're saying when when I said so, so I've talked. Play with this idea of devout racist and then complicit racist. There's mm-hmm. no such thing as a non-racist. Either mm-hmm. you are you are destroying this and looking to dismantle this thing that is currently exists, and you're working towards, and you're working towards developing culture around it, or you're either devout or or complicit. And so for me, when white people say these things that they think are supportive, because they speak a different language than I do, a, a different embodied language, a different verbal language, what they're actually telling me is. You are not safe.
0: See, you know, I think a lot of white people listening are like, "What? Why?" Yeah. Why? And, and so, he, so if I may, Rasman, I know you will check me if I miss this. When we say that, what we're saying is we don't understand what racism is. Yes. We don't understand what it means to be white. The other side of that is when we go to someone like Rezma and we say, "Um, Tell me about racism. And then he, you know, which is basically open your chest, open your guts, you know, be vulnerable, show yourself. I'm not going to show myself. I'm just going to receive, right? right. It's extractive. But I'm only going to receive what I agree with. And, and so these are all the reasons why, you know, black people just don't wanna deal with us yeah. until we get a little further along so we don't say things like, I'm not racist. And let me just be really clear. As a result of being raised in this society as a white person, I'm racist. Okay. I have a racist worldview. There's no way I don't have a racist worldview because it's embedded in everything. Mm -hmm. And that means I have racist assumptions and behaviors and investments. And it's liberating to start from that premise uh, and then just get to work trying to figure out how it's manifesting and interrupt that rather than the the insistence that, that we could be untouched by the water we're swimming in. Yeah. I mean, so many black people have said to me, yes, give me the upfront in-your-face racist because I I know where they're coming Mm -hmm. from. I know how to protect myself. Mm -hmm. The white progressive is smiling, but there's a knife in my back. Mm -hmm. That all lands
2: with great force on Brother George Floyd's body. The thing Mm -hmm. I think about Brother George... Um, that, I, that I've thought about is that he was such an ordinary man. Like one of the things that I've that I've been doing is that I have not watched the video. I have not watched that video all the way through because I can't. Um, but what I have done is I've taken the video and I've pulled out of, I've pulled George out of the frame and only focused on Chauvin and looked at his face yeah. all for that whole eight, nine minutes. Just look at his face, and when you watch his face, you see such sureness that the whole system is behind him, that nothing is going to happen, that he is doing his job, and he's not even doing it to a human being. White people got to work that out amongst themselves. They have to work out that, that pus amongst themselves. They have to figure out when all of that stuff comes up, when they're in the room with each other, they have to work that out. And that takes time mm-hmm. because it takes it takes people being intimate with each other, not intimacy like mother's milk, but intimacy like I am being exposed to you and we are going to move through this to develop something and grow up but white people are not even willing to acknowledge that there is an
1: infection yeah i i think also this matter of white people well the work we have to do together this work has to happen for the world to change i i worry about the culture We've created the, the public discourse culture we've created in recent years that kind of got backgrounded during the COVID early period and is kind of now back. That, that we, don't, we don't have public space where, where it is reasonable to invite people to confess, right, to change, to acknowledge shortcomings or to let other people do that. And I feel like that's a space that we have to create. But I guess yes. that's really the white people work among themselves yes. that has to happen.
2: Yeah, you have to create it. You're right; it mm-hmm. doesn't exist. An anti, an embodied anti-racist culture and practice doesn't exist. And now you have to create it. Yeah. Not only not not for me, but so you don't pass this infection down right. to your children.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and um, a book group over a glass of wine. Um, you know, I mean, this is at this point. Anybody listening, anybody white listening, um, might be feeling, "Oh my God, I can't get this right." And that is true. That's you true. cannot get this right. right. Like a piece of it mm-hmm. is is being in that pl- unsettling place of not knowing. Right, the, that deep, deep humility. And even the confession can be problematic, right? It can be, um, it can range from just a kind of form of masochism to a form of, well, I feel bad enough that you can see that I'm actually good. <laughs> And so that also yeah, no, becomes I'm, I'm
1: talking about performative. confession It is coupled <laughs> with repentance, <Yeah>. which <laughs> Doing literally something. means you'd yeah. stop in your tracks yeah. and Good. walk in a different direction. Yeah. And Good. do something. Yeah. Just had to put that out there because,
0: okay. because we, I mean, we also have to figure out how to do that work in accountable ways. Yes. I, I am a little yes. nervous about like how many people now are like, oh, I read your book and now I want to start yeah. a book study or I want to start a workshop. And you know, It takes years of experience and study and struggle and mistake making and trust building. I mean, to hold a group around race and really hold that group and and push them and help them go where, where they need to go in ways that are constructive, it takes, it takes a lot of experience. So, so we just have to also think, and, and you know, this isn't the maybe format to give the answer to accountability, but we need to be asking ourselves that.
1: Yeah, but somehow we need accountability that actually celebrates change because mm-hmm. right now we just have yelling at each other. And putting other people down. Are you
2: talking about white folks?
1: Yeah, I'm okay. talking about white folks. Okay. Yeah. I, it's one thing, you know, using the word we, I'm really trying to actually stop myself or question it every time I do it. And it's hard, but you're right. Yes, I mean white people. Yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. I mean, I usually just start out by saying when I say we, I'm talking to my fellow white people. Yeah.
1: So, you know, years ago I interviewed um, John Lewis in Montgomery, Alabama, which was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. And... One of the things John Lewis talks about, about the Civil Rights Movement in the 1950s and the 1960s, and the kind of disciplines mm-hmm. that they brought, the spiritual and tactical discipline mm-hmm. that they brought, was that while you had to be strategic and tactical and fight the fights and do the actions, um, you also had to know in your mind the world that you wanted to create. Mm-hmm. And you and he said you had to live as if. Mm-hmm. So you are working with what is, and you are applying your creativity and the power of human imagination and courage to to holding to that that world you are want to be walking towards and helping walking with others towards. So, so I I, mean, I think maybe I'll start with you, Robin. I. <laughs> What is that as if beyond white fragility as the norm and as a determinant, a driving force in, in our culture, our society?
0: Well, the word keeps coming up to me is repair, right? That, that we would have a framework that would allow us to repair. And the, the framework that is causing white fragility is, is a refusal to repair, a refusal to see or feel right some defensiveness is a natural response when you know given direct feedback about something like it's it's defensiveness that functions to refuse to understand or stretch or go deeper, right? That that is absolutely certain that they know all they need to know. And and I'm just going to say it. Many of your listeners right now are feeling that they already have the answer and they know all they need to know. And you know, here is the correct response. So so it would be the the yeah the the fortitude to get to a place of repair. Mm-hmm. What would it take? I'll, I. I'll never forget asking a group, that I asked the black people in the group, what would it be like if you could just go there with us, give us that feedback, tell us, talk to us? Mm-hmm. And we received it with grace. We reflected and we sought to change our behavior. And I'll never forget a black man raised his hand and said, it would be revolutionary.
1: <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Just, I mean, just notice that. Like, that's a revolution. Mm-hmm. We would receive that with grace, reflect, and seek to, to repair. But it, it, it's actually not that tall in order.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But it is a very tall order. I'd say it's too tall an order from the current paradigm. Yeah. Right. That says it has to be intentional to count. Yeah.
1: So, Rasma, let's say we're walking along the long arc of the moral universe— what is that What is that? as if yeah. so, that you want to be walking yeah. into uh, and you want your grandchildren to yeah. inherit? Yeah.
2: Um, the first thing that comes to my mind is uh, that black women can um, be in their bed sleeping and not have to worry about somebody kicking a door in and putting eight bullets in them. Um, that... Um, that our schools are such that they're organized around um, the care of um, black children's bodies and the need that they have as opposed to trying to fit them inside of something that is not working for them and that was never designed for them. You know, the system is not broken. It's desi- is, It was designed this way. It's doing exactly what it should do. So for me, the opposite is what I would need to see. The opposite is if something happens that our people can be in a situation where they can be redeemed. Um, So if they go to do something and they hurt somebody or something like that and they are in prison, which is not necessarily the case, is you don't necessarily have to do something if you're in a black body and end up in prison. That is not Mm -hmm. a prerequisite. Mm -hmm. But if you are, then that prison is actually a school. Well, that prison has things in it that will actually allow you to um, to not just sit and fester, but grow and prosper. And so for me, um, if I'm thinking my children are living in a world that I would design, it would be that they were um, not free of strife or not free of of... of Things happening, because um, difficult things can happen, and you can be bettered through them. Mm-hmm. What I'm talking about is the structural thing that makes it so that my life is not worthy. Um, I would like for that to to be different and change. And so, if I'm looking at it, uh, as my as uh, you said, the ancestor said, if I'm looking at you know the world as I would like it, that's where it would start for me.
1: To say both of your answers are really modest, you know what I mean? Like it's hard, that, and it says something that it's hard to imagine. Like that world you'd really, really want to live in as opposed to a world that's just free of brutality yeah. that shouldn't mm-hmm. be there in the first place.
2: I just need that first.
1: Uh-huh. Is, is there anything that's, that either one of you wants to add or something we didn't talk about that feels really important to name right now or that you want to get out?
2: Um nah. I think that's it for me. I'm 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 worn out. <laughs> okay.
1: Okay. Well then, that's a good reason to stop.
2: <laughs>
1: Thank you both so much.
2: Thank you, Krista.
1: Thank you, Krista. Thank you, Rasma. Blessings.
2: Yes, you too.
1: Resmaa Manikam's New York Times bestselling book is My Grandmother's Hands, Racialized Trauma and the Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies. Robin D'Angelo is the author of the best-selling White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. And her new book is Nice Racism, How Progressive White People Perpetuate Racial Harm. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of The On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The George Family Foundation, in support of the Civil Conversations Project. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. The Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. And the Ford Foundation, working to strengthen democratic values, reduce poverty and injustice, promote international cooperation, and advance human achievement worldwide.
2: On being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.